Well, good morning, friends. I'm so glad you could be with me today as we have this opportunity to be in God's Word together in our Wednesdays in the Word. If you've been with me, you know we've been in the midst of a study of the book of Romans. We're now in the third chapter of Romans. Today I want to pick up our reading in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Romans. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to sweat, shed blood, and in their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We've been in the midst of this study. In Romans 1.16, we encountered that wonderful truth about the gospel where Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Since that verse... Moving on into verse 17 of the first chapter, and until where we are now in the third chapter, we've been discovering in no uncertain terms, really, from God. And remember, everything in the scripture is God-breathed. He's the one who originates this truth. We've been discovering that everyone, everyone needs that gospel that's the power of God into salvation. Why? Because all people, men and women, from all ages have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all, therefore, pay, face accountability for that sin. All face judgment before the God who is really there. As Hebrews 9 told us, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, to face judgment. We also discovered that there's absolutely nothing any of us can do to solve that problem of accountability for sin. We can't turn over a new leaf and solve the, re the stain and the accountability for sin that we've done. We can't turn to religion and have religious activities we go through and somehow compensate for our sin. And we can't go through some sort of religious ritual or sacrament and compensate for our sin either. There's only one thing powerful enough to solve the sin dilemma of mankind. And of course, that one thing is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the gospel, again, verse 16 of the first chapter, is powerful enough to save us. Last time we were looking at verses 9 through 11 of this third chapter, and we were discovering once again that all of mankind is, and here's the phrase, under sin, which means all of mankind not only are sinners, but accountable for the sin that they've committed. You know, it's not unusual that people will admit that they're sinners. In fact, what's unusual if somebody claims perfection. 
But what is very usual is that people think, well, it doesn't really matter because God can't possibly expect us to be perfect. And if he is dealing with us on some sort of judgment level, then he must be doing it on a curve. And as long as I think I've done better things than other people have, I've not been quite as bad, everything will work out okay. <laughs> the scripture says, no, all are under sin. All are sinners, all are accountable before God for that sin. No matter where they find themselves on the relative continuum of human failure and human disruption. Well, in the verses I read today, starting in verse 10, working our way through verse 23, we've been discovering more about our accountability and at long last starting to encounter something about the solution that God has for this very real and universal accountability for sin and failure. He begins in verse 10 through 18 in these verses that I read to you in chapter 3 to discuss with us once again in sort of a culminating way the truth of the universal sinfulness of mankind. And God does that by turning our attention to a number of Old Testament passages. You see, this picture of sin and accountability before God is not some new idea only encountered in the New Testament. It was in the Old Testament as well. In fact, from verses 10 through 18 here in the third chapter of Romans, we discover quotes coming out of the Old Testament from eight different passages in the Old Testament showing this unity in what God has revealed in the scriptures, both in the old and the new, about our culpability as human beings for our rebelliousness and sin against God. In Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, and also in Psalm 53, verses 1 to 3, we have a duplicate set of verses, really, and they're being quoted here. Let me read them to you out of Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none that does good, not even one. You see how that is pictured in these verses in the book of Romans. By the way, it talks about, and even the terminology used here is very similar to Isaiah 53, that wonderful chapter in Isaiah that we call the suffering servant chapter, which talks about the Lord Jesus. And in that chapter, talking about us, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. All have turned aside instead of doing what God has commanded us to do. Another of the Old Testament passages that we encounter in these verses is out of, out of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. And there we read, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. <laughs> a clear observation about the reality of life. An observation all of us can amen when looking at our own lives, and certainly amen when looking at the lives of other people. Well, I won't read all eight verses out of, or passages in the Old Testament out of which these truths come, but you can find them in the book of Psalms, in the fifth chapter, in the fifth Psalm, in the 140th Psalm, the 36th Psalm, in Isaiah 59, 
picking up on these same verses being quoted in this part of Romans, talking about sin's reality. The point of it being, not only the quotes, but in these verses that I've read to you in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, the point is that God is underscoring for us the, pers- the pervasive presence of sin, the pervasive power of sin, and why everyone needs that power of God unto salvation that can be found nowhere else but in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 13 and 14 of the third chapter of Romans that I read to you, it talks about how our throats, our lips, and our mouths are all corrupted. (laughs) What's the point? God says, if you only looked at speech, if you only looked at how people talk, you would discover that there's not a sinless person around. Some people talk much worse than others, but here, all of us are sinners with what we say. All of us have been guilty of using our lips, our mouths, to corrupt other people, to say hurtful things, to say terrible things. Which of us could stand before God and say, well, that's not true. I've always said things that are good. (laughs) None of us could. And so God says, listen, we see this universal indictment of sin just by looking at the speech of people. Have you discovered that to be true of yourself? How many times have you been grieved in your heart thinking back on something you've said to somebody that you wish you could have unsaid? Something you feel like at the time I was angry, I wanted to say this, but later on you think, oh, I'd give anything if I hadn't said that. Therein is the problem. Sin and its universal application in humanity shows up in the way people talk. In verse 15, he describes that sin reality in humanity showing up by feet that are swift to do hurt and evil. It shows up in how we speak. It also shows up in how we act, our behavior choices. Who of us can say before God, my feet have never been swift to run to do something evil, something hurtful to somebody else? We're not talking just as little children throughout our life. Can any of us stand before God and say, well, when my feet were running, they were running the other way so that I didn't do something bad, I didn't do something evil? No. Let's be honest, let's be transparent. We all see the reality of that indictment in the behavior choices we've made. Often behavior choices that were not reluctant on our part, but racing, running to do the thing that we knew wasn't right before God. In verses 15 and 16 and 17, in in this passage, we discovered also that this sin shows up in the context of society. The conflict and tension that exists in human society is a picture, a proof of the universality of sin. He says there's conflict. He uses the term bloodshed, ruin, and misery. He even uses the idea, no lasting peace. Isn't that the picture of the world in which you live? It's certainly the picture of the world in which I live. Everywhere I look, tensions, conflict, hatred, ruin, misery, violence, bloodshed, the inability to have peace, 
internal within a country or a community or external between countries and between communities. <laughs> Therein is the great dilemma. People, sinners, simply cannot get along very well. So do you see the indictment developing? Any thinking person has to accept what God is saying and say, Amen, that's true. <laughs> Our speech reveals it. Our behaviors reveal it. The society and social conditions in which I find myself reveal it. No other explanation for it than sin corrupting the human being. In verse 18, he, he concludes this picture and he talks about there is no fear of God before their eyes, meaning humanity in general. Ultimately, sin's universal expression shows up in the way people respond to God. Not just how they speak, not just how they act in dealing with people, not just in how they collaborate together in a society. It shows up in the way they respond to God. There is no fear of God, it says, in their eyes. What that means, that there's no fear of God in their eyes, means that people don't honor and respect God as he is. In fact, you remember back in the first chapter of Romans, the indictment that God was laying down is that even though what could be true about God was known to people, they turn their back on it, they reject it and move in another direction. There is no fear of God in their minds. No one consistently seeks after him with all of their heart. Back in the 11th verse, remember, no one seeks after God. That doesn't mean there aren't times in people's lives when they might seek after God. But as a general statement, they don't do that. They don't seek after God. They go their own way. Amen, right? That is the human condition. That is your condition or was. That's my condition or was. All of us are under that indictment. Every person alive has rejected Proverbs 1.7, which says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise that wisdom and instruction. Everybody is a fool. <laughs> All of us have been fools. Now, verse 19 pulls it all together in this way. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped in the whole world held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The whole world is accountable before God. Unmistakable message of the scriptures, impossible to ignore and miss. No one who has ever lived will be able to stand when they come before God in judgment. No one will be able to stand there. No one will be able to stand in the sense of passing through it and having a passing grade. <laughs> Everyone is a sinner. All have sinned. Everyone who has ever lived is guilty of sin. Everyone who has ever lived, therefore, has been separated from God because of that sin, and is accountable before God because of that sin. That is the biblical message. I'll grant you, often that's not the message in some pulpits and in some churches, where the message in those churches is like, you're, I'm okay, you're okay, 
Now, God understands that we're but human. It's okay. No, no. The message of the scripture is a very clear-cut one. Now, we're not okay. All of us is in a terrible predicament. I was thinking of how this all is put in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. In verse 59, read these, listen to these verses. Verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it can't hear, but your iniquities, meaning sin, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Brothers and sisters, that reality, that separation, That distance between us and God. True now, but will be graphically true when we stand before him in judgment. What every person alive will discover at that day, if they have not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, is that their mouth will be stopped, is the terminology we saw earlier in Romans. Their mouth will be stopped. What that means is that when you stand before God, you simply won't be able to talk your way out of it. You simply won't be able to speak a defense that holds water before the God who knows you absolutely, who knows your heart, who knows every word you've done, knows all your motives. It will be clear that you not only haven't sought after him, but you've sinned in your life and in dealings with others. We will be unable to speak a defense We will all know with absolute certainty in that day that we are guilty and that we are without excuse before the God who is there. As he put it in verse 20, no one is going to be justified before God based on their works because when the works are revealed, all that's going to come with that is guilt, a sense of inescapable accountability. No one is justified before God. Now, this is the first place we run across this word justified. Uh, It means to be justified means to be declared acceptable and righteous, holy before God, before his eyes, before his scrutiny, before his judgment. As the rest of the end of chapter one, all of chapter two and chapter three to this point has made it plain to us, none of us will be justified by the good works we've done because we've also been sinners. None of us will be justified because of some religious action we've taken. None of us will be justified because we went through some sort of religious rite or sacrament. They're of no use to us. No turning over a new leaf of any sort in my life or your life solves ultimately the dilemma of sin before a God who is really there. We need an answer or we are without hope. I've often referred you back to Ephesians chapter 2, which picks up in parallel way these same truths where it says we are by nature objects of wrath. We are without hope and without God in this world, impossibly separated from him. (laughs) That is the true condition of humanity. And therefore, isn't it a miracle that God in Romans 1.16 says, There is a message, the gospel, that is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, everyone who apart from it is hopeless and helpless and without God and facing inescapable accountability. 
God had to do something. And praise God, God did something. Notice how he puts it here in verses 21 to 23. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from the actions that we may do. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God is now seen in faith through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Think for a moment about verse 21. In that opening phrase, but now. What wonderful words. After knowing the inescapable truth of the preceding verses going all the way back into the first chapter, the, knowing those truths about our sin, about the impossibility of our sin, the inescapable nature of our accountability before God, the fact that there's nothing we can do about it. What wonderful words. But God. <laughs> you see, but us, there's nothing we could do. Would we be without hope totally? Yes, unless God did something. And what we find here in verse 21, God did something. Did something about this impossible situation. Did something about the inescapable, eternal dilemma facing a rebellious, sinful mankind. In Ephesians 2, I told you already this sort of parallel part of the scriptures. The same phrase is used after describing the hopelessness and accountability of the human being because of their sin. It says, but God, but God. I like that phrase, but God. If you're, if you're looking for something to put on a plaque somewhere so you can put it on your wall and remind yourself up, use the passage here in Romans, use the Ephesians passage and put in big letters, but God, dot, dot, dot. Without God, nothing's just going to solve anything. But God has solved our problem. He has done something about solving the impossible circumstance that you and I face. It's, it's a miracle. It is a miracle. There is an answer to the unanswerable. <laughs> These verses, in fact, going ahead into the upcoming verses, let's say verses 21 to 26, are a wonderful set of verses. Hope in the midst of despair. If you don't understand your true condition, they're sort of meaningless. But if you understand, accept what God has said about the true dilemma of humanity, they are beautiful verses, amazing verses, wonderful verses. Why? Because, number one, they tell us that what can't be earned by men and women individually has now been provided for them. What can't be earned? Now provided. We also learn, keeping with it, that what trying to keep the law could never do for us, grace and mercy from God has done for us. <laughs> and what we discovered was impossible to merit on our own has now been shown to us to be freely given from God. <laughs> what amazing verses. But God has provided what we could not earn, 
has done what we could not do, has given what we could never merit. But God, and what is it that God has done? God's great gift, God's great answer, revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer for sinners is a Savior. As he puts it here, manifested apart from the law, through faith in Jesus Christ. God has done something. He has sent his only son into this world to die for us who deserved only judgment and separation from him and were inexorably drawn to that outcome in our lives. Think how it put it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. All of us could say, of whom I am the foremost. And isn't it wonderful that the Lord Jesus Christ, God's great answer, came into the world to save me, to save you, to save Paul. It's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am a sinner. Jesus Christ, this solution that God has given, the power of God unto salvation, uh, this Jesus Christ told us in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, absolutely no one, will come to the Father but through me. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses two, 5 and 6, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which was the testimony given at the proper time. God has done something, but God has done what had to be done to save us from our impossible situation. What great hope. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby or by which we must be saved. This wonderful solution, this but God solution, is all centered on Jesus Christ. It is a solution powerful enough to save all who believe. Going back to Romans 1.16. It's powerful enough to save me. It's powerful enough to save you. But it is a solution that must be acted upon. It's not enough to know about it. We can understand the gospel, the solution that God has provided, but we need to act upon it. We need to admit what God has gone to these great lengths to, di to diagnose for us. We need to admit that we are sinners. Secondly, we need to admit that it matters. Most people, remember, don't think it matters. It does matter, and it matters eternally. Something must be done to pay for the sin that inexorably separates us from God and will keep us separated for eternity. We have to act on that truth, acknowledge our sin, believe our culpability for it, trust that Jesus Christ is God's solution, is the power of God unto salvation. Turn to him and rest in him as your personal savior, not resting in anything you've done. Respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. 
Well, starting the next verses, next time we get together, Lord willing, we're going to learn much more about this great solution for sinners. And so now God has pretty much finished making it clear why we need saved. And now he's going to be focused on how we can be saved. Join me then as we continue in our study of this amazing book that God has breathed out to us, the book of Romans. God bless.